Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Ross Caputi, who is a Ph.D. student in history at UMass and is a co-author of the critically important new book, The Sacking of Fallujah, A People's History. Ross Caputi's experience as a U.S. Marine in Fallujah in 2004 compelled him to speak out against the war and to organize solidarity efforts with Fallujah. He is also a co-founder of the Isla Reparation Project. See reparations.org. Ross Caputi, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for writing this terrific book. Just to be safe, can you remind people where Fallujah is or was? So Fallujah is in Iraq's Anbar province. It's a, a western province, and Fallujah is probably about uh, 50 miles west of Baghdad along the Euphrates River. And what sort of a place uh, was it before any of its uh, U.S.-led liberations began? Well, before 2003, uh, Fallujah was um, pr- a pretty parochial town. You know, it, it didn't have a, a great amount of industry. It didn't it was in a, a pretty ag- agricultural area of Iraq. So it was sort of like an urban center in this largely agricultural area. Um, not the capital of the region, but probably the second largest city of Anbar province. One of the things that distinguished it was this long tradition of resistance against uh, foreign invaders and foreign occupiers. So Fallujah played a very important role in the Iraqi resistance against British colonialism. And then under Saddam's rule, it was sort of like a, a garrison city. Lots of soldiers from Saddam's army were, were based in Fallujah. So then, you know, at uh, by the time of the 2003 invasion, like all all of the elements were there for Fallujah to become a, a hotbed of insurgency uh, against the, the U.S.-led occupation, and it just needed sort of a push over the edge, and the occupiers pretty quickly provided that push. And so what happened in uh, 2003? Well, there's a, there's a famous incident. It's um, uh, maybe not famous, not not in the U.S. anyways, but within Iraq, it's a famous incident, sort of like a Bloody Sunday-like incident. So after the initial invasion phase, the, the U.S. at first didn't really give any strategic importance to Fallujah. They just sort of passed it on the highway as they sped on to Baghdad, and they thought that if they captured Baghdad, then they would have control over all of Iraq. And then uh, U.S. troops didn't uh, really have a presence in Fallujah until weeks later. And then pretty much immediately there started to be problems. Um, the, it was the 82nd Airborne that, that had a presence in Fallujah. And just right away, there was a lot of cultural misunderstandings. They didn't understand how offensive it was to place soldiers on the top of roofs with binoculars. Because in, in Iraqi culture, that's a, vi- a violation of people's privacy. They didn't understand the cultural taboos of searching people at checkpoints, and that caused a lot of offense. Um, they were just sort of speeding up and down streets in their, in their Hummers and sort of just disrupting life in a way that was offensive to Fallujahs. So within like the first week, uh, um, I think it was April 28, 2003, there was a protest outside a school building that American soldiers had uh, captured and occupied as, uh, as a firm base. And, you know, the, the demands were pretty simple. They wanted the school opened again for, for school children, and they wanted uh, less of an interruption uh, from the soldiers in their, in their daily affairs. It's a bit unclear um, how this situation escalated. The U.S. Army claims that they were fired upon from people 
uh, in the crowd. Human Rights Watch later did a ballistic study and found no evidence to support that. Some journalists on the scene uh, think that a shoe was thrown at American soldiers who then overreacted, fired into the crowd, killed about a dozen uh, protesters and injured uh, several dozen more. Same thing happened two days later. Again, there was another protest. Um, there's really no evidence to suggest that the, that the uh, crowd was armed. The army claims that they were fired upon and they fired into the crowd and killed, uh, I think, two more and injured another dozen. So that was really the, the spark that gave birth to the insurgency in Fallujah. Well, it, it strikes me as relatively similar to virtually every occupation of anybody else's country by anybody else. I mean, it was would it have been hard to predict if the, the Pentagon had taken a little bit of its trillions of dollars and hired, like, one historian? <laughs> I think not, because it is so similar to Bloody Sunday in Ireland or the incident in Lexington Concord with, uh, with the English soldiers. Um yeah, it, it, it seems like this is a, an incident that could have been easily avoided. And so in the months that followed, um, even members within the insurgency, where uh, leaders of the insurgency, were looking to work with U.S. troops. And there was a lot of very like concrete actions that, that they could have taken to de-escalate the conflict and to, um, to provide some amount of security. For example, letting Fallujah uh, create its own police force. Um, but that was overridden by Paul Bremer, the um, uh, the head of the Coalition Provisional Authority at the time. Um, there were other like concrete measures that that the local leadership was asking the the army for, but were constantly overridden by the 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 central government, the American central-run government in Baghdad. But but temporarily there was some sort of agreement that allowed Fallujah more independence than the rest of Iraq, and and that actually was working out relatively better for Fallujah, right? Yeah, they formed a, a, a city council, you know, um, you know, allowing a place for local leadership instead of taking dictates from uh, Paul Bremer and, and the the CPA. And for a while it worked. <laughs> it worked almost too well because the the. It showed that by removing the presence of the occupiers, you know, uh, the situation calmed down in Fallujah. The city, the city functioned. There were fewer uh, skirmishes between the resistance forces and, and the occupiers. Um, so it, it was a model that that couldn't be allowed to exist uh, because the the occupier they needed they needed the justification that they, they were morally obligated to stay to assist in this transition towards democracy. It couldn't, it, it couldn't be shown that they were actually disrupting democracy in Iraq. So Paul Bremer eventually overrode this uh, local city council in Fallujah and, and imposed um, police forces from outside. And, and so the success, the, the, the relative presence of security and democracy was the reason for going in and forcibly uh, acting in the name of imposing security and democracy in, in 2004. Ironically, yes, it was seen. It was seen as a, a disobedience, I guess. Um, you know, Fallujah was seen as a city that was outside of the control of the coalition provisional authority, and they they just couldn't accept that. Uh, and so, what happened? And what did Blackwater have to do with it? Well, um, these events were happening sort of in the, the fall of 2003, and then you know when Paul Bremer sort of overrode the city council and he brought in. Uh, police forces from outside and and placed them in Fallujah. The situation continued to escalate until April 4th of 2004, when 
this famous incident with the four Blackwater mercenaries were driving through Fallujah. Seems like they thought they were taking a shortcut through the city by themselves without a full security detail like they were supposed to have. And they were ambushed and killed and um, bodies lit on fire and hung from this bridge over the Euphrates River as sort of war trophies. And the, the media immediately seized upon this incident, sensationalized it out of context. It became this sort of um, hot topic issue that elicited so much outrage in the U.S. that against the better judgment of the U.S. leadership, they were pressured into a punitive military response. And that was the first siege of Fallujah. Um, the context that was lacking from that media coverage is that U.S. forces had killed roughly 60 civilians in the six months prior to this incident. So people from Fallujah were furious. There was no, no justice for them. There was no accountability for the people who committed these crimes. So, you know, eventually the rage just boiled over and they took matters into their own hands. And, you know, it, as ugly as this incident was, it's it, it's not hard to understand, and and the Blackwater mercenaries were depicted in the in the media that you're saying pushed for the, for for action out of out of the U.S. government uh, as as innocent civilian bypassers. Yeah, they were they were literally called civilians, but they're I mean they're technically not part of the military, but they're mercenaries. <laughs> that's the that's the explanation that was lacking here, and they were mercenaries that fell into all these strange legal loopholes. Because they're not part of the U.S. military, so not part of the, the not not subject to the Uniform Code of uh, Military Justice, also not subject to Iraqi law or international law. So they too were often, you know, committing crimes, killing civilians um, with, with complete impunity. So um, Iraqis were more angry towards them than anyone. We're speaking with Ross Caputi, who's a co-author of this incredible new book called The Sacking of Fallujah. So, so a number of sieges of Fallujah, we've gotten to the point in the story of, of the first siege of Fallujah, right? What, what happened? So the um, U.S. forces completely encircle Fallujah, and uh, they send in two, two battalions. Um, I think it was uh, two... 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, and then um, uh, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, if I'm not mistaken. And the the military aspect of this basically ended in stalemate. Um, they were, U.S. forces were very surprised by the resistance put up by the various militias in Fallujah. They were surprised at how well trained they were and their ability to fight back. But what really became a problem for for the U.S. military was that Al Jazeera, uh, the Al Jazeera media company, had been able to place a broadcast crew within Fallujah and captured on camera the human consequences of the, the U.S. operation. So dozens, even hundreds of civilian deaths due to American uh, airstrikes and American uh, military movements in, in the city. Um, it, it elicited so much outrage within Iraq and outside of the country that the U.S. was forced to withdraw because of this entire political project of occupying Iraq and imposing this very particular kind of political system onto Iraq was crumbling before their eyes. People within the interim Iraqi government uh, were resigning. There was um, uh, Iraq new, new uh, battalions from the new Iraqi army deserting because they were so outraged that was going on. They just they were on the brink of losing control of the entire country. So they withdrew from the city, nominally gave control to a, a new force that they put together called the Fallujah Brigade, which was comprised of Iraqi police forces and insurgents. 
And they claimed that this was an attempt to work with Iraqis on their terms to find an Iraqi solution to an Iraqi problem, as they put it, and to try to take the peaceful road. Really what they were doing, and this is revealed in internal conversations that they were having at the time, they were just biding time for a second operation to retake the city. And in that interim period of about six months, they launched this major campaign of information warfare to shape the, the battle space, as they, as they called it. Battle space is basically the battlefield plus cyberspace plus the information realm. So they were going to wage this propaganda campaign to manage the way international audiences perceived the U.S. operations such that they wouldn't be faced with the kind of backlash they were faced during the first siege. So they launched all this propaganda about the insurgents in Fallujah. Now they stopped calling them uh, Ba'athist diehards and thugs and so on and started calling them al-Qaeda terrorists. They uh, disseminated all this propaganda about Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, allegedly the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, claiming that he was in Fallujah, using the city as a base to recruit an army, launch attacks all across Iraq. There is zero evidence suggesting that this is true. I, I haven't found a single report from a Fallujian or anyone who saw Zarqawi in Fallujah. There's zero evidence of this. Nonetheless, this is the claim that was made to legitimize the second siege of Fallujah in November 2004. And it worked. It worked. And, and, and when were you there, and what did you think you were doing there? Uh, I, I was brought into Fallujah for the, the second siege, and I guess, uh, I guess I believed it. Um, it, it also, to a certain extent, didn't really matter to me because, you know, I, I went to Iraq wanting to have this war experience selfishly and naively. Um, you know, I just, uh, I was, I grew up in this kind of apolitical bubble, didn't really know much about the world. And just kind of wanted to get out of my hometown, have adventures, be able to come back and tell war stories and get treated like a hero. So, you know, I, I signed up to go to Iraq. Like, I wanted to go to Iraq and be part of the war. I didn't want just, like, you know, guard duty or something like that. I actually wanted to fight, as crazy as that might seem. Um, so I, the details didn't really matter to me. I guess I just assumed whoever we'd be fighting against were bad guys, and, you know, we must have been the good guys, and... You know, I wanted to save innocent Iraqis and, and fight against the bad ones. Um, so I went into Fallujah naively, I guess, you know, as, assuming that that the, the the pretext for the operation were, were good and just. But, uh, you know, in the course of the operation, I had a lot of doubts because just the extent of the destruction was so... So incredible. I mean, this was a, a fairly large city. You know, there were 300,000 people living there, and we leveled, like, an entire third of it. An entire third of the city leveled to the ground. And the other third of the city with major damage, and then the last third of the city just sort of, like, pockmarked with bullet and rocket holes. Um, but, yeah, it just uh, it didn't add up to me. You know, the story that they were telling that we were liberating the civilians of Fallujah from um, al-Qaeda occupation... How could this possibly be a liberation when we forced everyone out of the city to go live in tents in the desert and then destroyed their homes? So I initially had a lot of doubts, not enough to to make me refuse to participate, regrettably. And it wasn't until years later when I actually started to study this and understood the full context around the operation that I, I grasped exactly how awful it was what we did. 
Well, if we can manage to get this book, The Sacking of Fallujah, into the hands of any, any young people uh, in the United States who are watching military recruitment ads, uh, I, I think they will have a hard time making those sort of assumptions uh, because there's a lot of truth in here. The, the story you tell, Ross, of the U.S. military blaming Al Jazeera for uh, bad marketing of the first siege of Fallujah by showing people the, the atrocities... Uh, I think your book does some of some of the same, and it includes stories uh, in, in first person from residents of Fallujah, and and some of them describe something called the family game. Can you can you tell people what that is? Yeah, this was a story collected by anthropologist Dr. Kali Rubai, who did amazing work with uh, refugees from Fallujah. Um, so this story is from one uh, young man. Uh, at this point, he's probably in his mid-20s in Fallujah. He was just a, a young teenager in, in 2004. Um, so the testimony he gave was that um, he and his family were sort of trapped in Fallujah during the, the second siege. And at a certain point, I think his uh, sister ran out into the road. I can't remember the reason for it, but she was shot by an American sniper. And then his father went to sort of to try to collect the body, and he was also shot by a sniper, um, and but didn't die right away. And then this young man, his brother, his two brothers, mother, and youngest sister all had to watch them bleed out in the street. And then they um, had to, to stay in that house with the, the bodies of their loved ones outside for uh, another couple of days, uh, dehydrated, without much water to drink, almost no food to eat. Over the course of a few more days, another brother was wounded, another one killed. It's just this awful, heart-wrenching story. And um, Sammy, the main the narrator of this story, uh, calls this the family game, in which American snipers were systematically picking off anyone who, who would leave their homes, one family member at a time. So when one wouldn't be killed in the street and another would go out to try to remove the body, the next one would be killed. And it's, he's not the only person to tell this story. There's a lot of testimony about the behavior of American snipers during, during these sieges. I, I got the impression that this was, became a common phrase, at least among the Iraqis, if not among the Americans, that this was called the family game. Is that, is that your understanding? Yeah. Um, so, of course, the the airstrikes probably killed uh, the most civilians in Fallujah during the first siege. I think the um, the the count uh, the death count is between seven hundred and eight hundred civilians killed. During the second siege, um, there's there's only one estimate between four thousand and six thousand civilians killed. And in both sieges, you know, obviously the the airstrikes were terrible. But what terrorized Iraqis most, because it seemed so so excessively cruel that people were being picked off in the street in this way, there, there's a there's more testimony and outcry against the behavior of snipers than, than anyone else. You describe uh, these these two sieges, at least, of Fallujah as sociocide. What is a, what makes them a sociocide? So sociocide in the sense that they completely destroyed the, the, the social fabric, the way of life of Fallujah. Um, you know, we make a couple of um, accompanying arguments as well. We argue that the, the sieges themselves were acts of herbicide, the destruction of urban spaces. 
And they also amounted to ecocide because, you know, the weapons that were used polluted the environment to, to such an extent that within, within a year, there was a very serious public health crisis due to the, to the, um, uh, the, envir- the environmental pollution. And sociocide, you know, yes, resulted from these operations, but from the occupation as a whole, because it pitted neighbor against neighbor, because, you know, the U.S. deliberately used tactics of divide and conquer to elicit a sectarian war between Sunnis and Shia, and then they, you know, they hired certain militias to collaborate with the U.S., and that created even more divisions within Iraq, and they created this confessionalist political system in which so many Sunni people get seats in parliament and so many Shia people get seats in parliament and Kurds and the Turkmen and, and so on and so forth, so forth and pit these communities in a competition for power and resources amongst one another and it destroyed the country. So that's why we make this argument of, of sociocide. Can you, can you describe that health crisis, the birth defects, cancer, miscarriages? What is the status now? Yeah, so I mean, the, the status isn't any better uh, than it was 10 years ago. I think it was about 2005 that doctors in the Fallujah Hospital started to witness unusual frequency of birth defects and cancers. So babies were being born with very strange birth defects. Some, and the strangest thing about it was compound birth defects. So a baby might have a heart birth defect as well as uh, an extra limb or some sort of skin defect or something like that. And statistically, this is very rare for there to be so many cases of multiple birth defects. And it started to give people the impression that, that, you know, something must be wrong. And it is indeed strange that these started to emerge so soon after the the, the seizures of 2004, because normally when there's some sort of environmental um, uh, contamination or toxin or whatever, it can take years for there to be um, some sort of um, symptoms in, in the population. But this emerged immediately, and there was a very high uh, quick, very quickly, very high rates of cancer and birth defects. So I think um, over the past 10 years, the, the rates of birth defects in Fallujah has been around uh, 14%, which is the highest in the world, possibly the highest in recorded history. It, that's, in, that's 30 times higher than the rates in, in Europe. And the rates of uh, leukemia and other cancers are extremely high as well. So since 2005, there's been a handful of studies looking at possible explanations for why we're seeing this public health crisis in Fallujah and in other Iraqi cities. This is really across the board in the country, but Fallujah is a particularly bad cluster. So one potential source is uh, depleted uranium weapons. And I say potential because as likely as it may seem, it's really very, very difficult to prove that these weapons um, caused um, this public health crisis. It's just, you know, outside of... um, um, a controlled experimental setting, it's very hard to make claims about um, causal relationships. So depleted uranium is one theory. Um, another theory is because some studies have in fact found slightly enriched uranium in Fallujah. So we're not quite sure what weapon system, if any, might have placed slightly enriched uranium in Fallujah. One theory is that thermobaric weapons to produce their particular kind of explosion could use a very reactive metal like uranium or a slightly enriched version of uranium. There are also studies that show that there are extremely high uh, levels of lead and mercury, which are neurotoxic metals and are in most conventional munitions. So it just may be the case that Fallujah was so saturated uh, by bombing 
that there are excessive levels of lead and mercury in the city. There, there are a lot uh, of theories, then, Ross, but all the leading theories seem to be one type of weapon or another used in the in the U.S.-led assault on Iraq. Yeah, and the the really difficult thing is proving that these elements that we're finding in Fallujah came from this particular weapon system. So we have these theories to explain what we're seeing in Fallujah, but it's impossible to prove. Yeah, we're just we've only got. Uh, three or four minutes left, and I, I want to give people a, a sort of a of an overview, and then they need to read this book, uh, The Sacking of Fallujah. But there was a third siege of Fallujah we haven't mentioned, wasn't there? Yeah, that's right. It started in 2014 when ISIS first emerged. Uh, emerged as like a major military force. They, they had sort of a, a footprint for years prior to that. But uh, ISIS emerged in the winter of 2014 at after a new uprising had already started in Iraq. So this was led by Sunni Iraqis who were disenfranchised and rising up against the central government trying to win equal rights because they were really being treated like second-class citizens in Iraq. ISIS showed up after this already started, sort of riding on the coattails of this uprising, just as they had done in Syria. They eventually eclipsed all these local militia forces and sort of... um, occupied Anbar province and other regions that were uprising against the the central government. And it lasted until 2016 when the Iraqi government, with assistance from U.S. forces, from these uh, Hashid al-Shabi militias um, who had a strong relationship with the Iraqi central government and and Iran, uh, all teamed up to retake Fallujah from ISIS. Um, again, the city was completely destroyed. 300,000 people were forced out of their homes and into refugee camps. And they've since returned. There has been some reconstruction in Fallujah. But Fallujahs today, they, they live in fear. They, they feel conquered by the Iraqi government. Um, these uh, Hashid al-Shabi militias um, have offices in Fallujah. They patrol the streets. People are terrified of them because they committed a lot of crimes in the course of this operation. It's a, it's a really ugly situa- situation that could very easily erupt again in insurgency. After such horrific uh, actions in recent years, uh, it seems strange to back out and take a, a larger picture, but it seems to me that the United States is leading the world uh, in altering the Earth's climate uh, and rendering the entire region that Fallujah sits in uninhabitable uh, through extreme heat. Uh, is there any uh, concern or awareness or discussion of this sort of uh, longer-term sacking of Fallujah? Uh, within the U.S. military, I, I'm unaware. Well, I'm within, unaware of that. Within Fallujah, within Iraq. Within Fallujah, yes. Um, you know, I, for a long time, residents within Fallujah thought that it was white phosphorus weapons that were making people so sick and had contaminated the environment so much. So there's actually not a lot of evidence for that. Yes, these weapons were used, but they don't have lingering environmental consequences. Um, it's likely these other sources of contamination that, that I mentioned. And, you know, there, there's the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons. There are other organizations that are working on these issues. But, you know, the... The United States government, you know, they don't, they don't recognize international law. How do you bring the rule of law to bear upon the United States government? It's a very, very difficult thing. It's, so, you know, there is work being done, but there are, there are serious political barriers to being able to do anything effective about this. 
It's an excellent question. Uh, the book is wonderful. You need to get a copy. It's called The Sacking of Fallujah, A People's History. A co-author is Ross Caputi, our guest. He is also the co-founder of the Isla Reparations Project. Ross, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Uh, thanks for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.